Loving God, thank you um, that you are with us always. You don't actually need a prayer button to hear what we're saying. Um, I thank you that you do kind of multiply everything that we have so so much so that um, whatever gift we have, however small it seems, can be um, put to incredible use by you to, to bring about your kingdom and to bring about um, the Sabbath life. And as we speak about that today, um, I pray that you will um, to be, be with us and, um, and move, move our hearts and move our minds and move our bodies. Amen. Um, this one's a little bit of a, I have a few different styles of talks, and this is one of the hotchpotchy ones, um, so hang in there. It's, it's something where you can maybe extract, rather than trying to get, a, trying to get a, a big picture, there may not be a big picture, just try to extract something from it, you know, a, a bit, bits and pieces. Um, but I, I want to start by just saying um, thank you uh, to this community, um, because when I joined this place, um, about, I always have to think how old Tilly was, um, but uh, it was about five years ago now. Um, my uh, spiritual life was kind of, it wasn't dead, but it was kind of stalled. And, um, and as I became part of this community and was kind of drawn somewhat unwillingly into uh, a place where I was asked to do some speaking and, um, and now some leading, God forbid. Um, it's had it's just had an amazing uh, impact on on my own uh, spiritual life. Just that the opportunity that you have given me um, to to actually spend time spend time reading, spend time reflecting, spend time meditating, spend time praying. Spend time working out how to to reengage with the Bible, all of these kinds of things, and it really has had a, a life giving impact on me. Um, so thank you. And I start with that because, in a way, this is what we're talking about today. We're talking about the idea of um, of God helping us to journey to a place of life, um, and sometimes it can seem like classic preaching rhetoric to sort of say, oh, you know, here's this vision that we're heading towards, but in, in the reality of your life you feel completely stalled and completely stuck and like this is just actually making my situation harder because you're setting up this impossible ideal when I'm stuck. Um, so I hope you don't experience today like that, but um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to begin by saying thank you because my experience of this community is not that. Uh, my, my experience of this community is not a place that sets up impossible ideals for me that I can't fulfil and that just end up discouraging me, but it feels like a place where we're setting up um, things that are possible and things that are, that are somewhat more realistic than what I grew up with um, and that are, are more life-giving as a result. So I hope... I hope there are shades of that in your experience of this community, and I hope that can become more so. 
Um, so I've kind of started with my conclusion, but um, we'll, we'll circle back to that at the end, hopefully. Um, so what we've been doing um, is looking at um, this. Apologies for people that are here regularly because we just go over this every week. But we've been looking at the, the line, give us today our daily bread from the Lord's Prayer. And we've been treating it a little bit like um, in Zen Buddhism, they have the idea of the koan, K-O-A-N, which is a, a little line or a little saying that um, is somewhat kind of paradoxical. Uh, and it's, so it's like a little stone that you just turn over and over in your hand, trying to, not, in a sense, not really trying to make sense of it, but, but the very act of just turning over this paradox can, can bring life. Uh, and so we've been looking at this paradox. What does it mean for us as people that um, have bread all around us at the shops? Um, we can supply our own bread needs so easily. What does it mean for us to ask God to give us today our daily bread? Um, so this is the, yeah, the paradox that we've been reflecting on and will continue to reflect on over the next weeks. Um, and we've also been looking at, um, to help us with make sense of this paradox, we've been looking at the story of the Exodus. Um, you'll be sick of these slides, but um, we've been looking at the journey of Israel from the land of Egypt. Um, and we've been looking at all the things that this land represented for Jews, the, in Hebrew, it's Mitzrayim is the word for Egypt. And Mitzrayim, the, this word has all these resonances, not just of a place, but of a way of life that's, that has these kinds of characteristics, work as endless, constant discontent, um, never having enough. Um, what we produce defines us. Uh, so we've been talking about that experience as characteristic of, of our own experience of life so often. And we've been looking at two things out of that. We've been looking at the idea of a desert experience, the wilderness experience, the experience, the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness as a, a way of detoxing from that Mitzrayim way of life and a way of, I guess, creating a blank slate, creating a space where something new can come about, the newness that we've described as manuha. Manuha is um, the Hebrew word for rest, God's rest. Uh, and in Deuteronomy, it's, it's a word that is used to describe Canaan, the land of Canaan that Israel is traveling towards. Um, God describes Canaan as God's rest. Israel is traveling towards. And we've, we've talked a lot about the different characteristics of um, this land of Manuha, this way of life. Um, Sabbath life is another way that we've described it. Um, so dependence, gratitude, delight. Last week we talked about uh, an attitude of hospitality, having an attitude of hospitality towards each other, um, towards the planet, towards other people, towards other creatures. 
so that's they're the kind of two things that we've been trying to pull together. And obviously the idea of bread holds all of that together because in the, in the desert God provided manna for Israel as an act of generosity, as an act of hospitality, but also to help them to learn dependence on God. I thought I'd create a new slide for us today, just you know, because you might be sick of these ones from Shane. And I, I, I created this awesome map. I'll just give you a moment just to take it in. Some of us are more visual, so we like a map or, you know. Better than a thousand words, isn't it? A great image like that. Uh, so the question is how do we, and it, we've been looking at it in many different ways, but how do we, how do we make this journey? Um, obviously for us, it's not a physical journey like this that we're talking about. You know, that we're not actually going anywhere, but we're, we're talking about a process by which we turn the same places and the same relationships into different places and different relationships. So we, we take the life that we're living and the places that we occupy, the work that we do, all of the relationships that we have, and we think of ways in which we can transform them from Mitzrayim-type places and contexts and relationships into ones characterised um, by rest. Um, one of my favourite people, Richard Rohr, says that most of us cannot run off to the wilderness. Most of us cannot run off to a hermitage or a monastery forever. Um, and so somehow, for us, rather than spending 40 years in the wilderness, we somehow need to work out, um, check out how many W's there are in this sentence. I really worked hard on this one. Um, how we can weave the wilderness into the warp and weft of our, exist- our existence. It's hard to put a W into existence. Uh, how, how we can weave the wilderness into the warp and weft of our existence um, is what I want to talk about today and what we're going to be looking at for the next um, actual couple of months. We're, I'm quite excited about the next couple of months for a couple of reasons. One, I won't be talking very much. The other is that we're getting lots of different people from the community to talk about exactly this question, how to weave wilderness into their existence in the detail of life so that they can produce um, more of this feeling of rest and gratitude and delight. And we'll be talking about contexts like work and home and, um, and money and food. Um, but today I guess I wanted to try to set up a few of the categories that we'll be um, talking about in the next uh, few weeks um, and talk about uh, the kinds of uh, practices, the kinds of uh, disciplines that we, that we might need. Um, because we need to 
cultivate desert moments in our lives um, so that we can re-enter our lives as, as Manuha rather than Mitzrayim. Um, desert moments, create desert moments that make us stop and step outside the habits of our lives and ask questions that allow us to start seeing the same places, the same activities as places of rest and delight and gratitude. Um, in Living the Sabbath, I referred to this before, in Living the Sabbath, a book by Norman, Norman Wurzbar that we've been looking at, um, he, he talks about it in this way. Um, His, ter- his term for, um, for manuhar is the Sabbath, the Sabbath life. Rather than being simply a break from frenetic, self-obsessed ways of living, the Sabbath is a discipline and practice in which we ask, consider, and answer the questions that will lead us into a complete and joyful life. Sabbath is a teaching that has the potential to redirect and transform all our existence, bringing it into more faithful alignment with God's life-building and life-strengthening ways. Sabbath life is a truly human life, abundant life, life at its best. The Wurzbach seems to be suggesting that what we're looking for in, in terms of um, generating this Sabbath life is, is a, a kind of conversation or a dynamic um, between disciplines and practices, habits that we're cultivating, and questions that flow from those habits and practices. So a kind of a back-and-forth conversation between activity, practices, and reflection that lead us deeper and deeper into Sabbath life, into embodied trust, and into uh, manuha. Um, in his book, Wurzbach gives us some examples of the kinds of questions that might be generated by our, our practices of, um, of gratitude and of rest and of delight and reflection. These are a few of them. The kinds of questions that, that desert moments can generate are questions like these. What is all our living finally for? Why do we commit to so much? Why do we devote ourselves to the tasks or priorities that we do? Will we know we have achieved or acquired enough? What purpose does all our striving serve? So I think as we, as we cultivate practices of gratitude and rest and delight, and as we... Uh, reflect on the kinds of questions that that prompts, the way it causes us to question the way that we're living and the way that we are relating to each other. I think it also helps to transform our relationship with the Bible. Um, desert moments and the questions they generate can can draw Scripture in new ways into this kind of deepening conversation. Um, one passage that really brought this home for me um, in the last couple of weeks is this one, Exodus 16, 15 to 18. When the Israelites saw the manna, they said to one another, what is it? 
for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so. Some gathered more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. As I meditated on this this passage recently, a very provocative question occurred to me, and that was because I've been reflecting on work a lot recently. What what would change for me if it didn't matter how hard I worked each day? If at the end of the day, all of us ended up with exactly the same amount of money? What if work was not connected to money in any way? How would that change? How would that change the way I worked? How would that change how much I worked? How would that change the kind of work that I did and the attitude that I had to it? I'm going to treat that as a genuine question that you might have answers to. But as you reflect on your own work life, yeah, certainly for me... um, as I reflected on this question, I, I realized that there was way too much drivenness in my relationship with work and way too much fear and anxiety that drove the amount that I work. I mean, my situation is unusual in that I have three jobs. So I have there's kind of much more scope for flexibility in my work situation. I think for some people you have your full-time work and kind of an all-or-nothing deal. Either I do this full-time or I give it away so that the stakes are higher and the situation is different. For me, I have three separate jobs, a one-day job, a two-day job, a one-and-a-half-day job. So there's a, there's, there's a clear opportunity there for me to go, well, I could just, yeah, give up one of those. Why, why don't I? You know, what, what, would, what would be the effect of doing that? What would be the effect of not doing that? Um, and so often it's not even a question that I, I've asked myself. I just go, well, you work as much as you kind of can given the constraints of your life um, to, to give yourself as much security as you can uh, and to be confronted with the fact that, that the Sabbath world doesn't operate that way. The Sabbath, the Sabbath world operates in a way where work serves a different function and... And the word enough, as we said before, is, is a word that we can actually utter. Does anyone have any other thoughts on, on this passage or those questions? I was just thinking about the class system. So particularly um, in countries where class system isn't necessarily dictated by money, dictated by birth and there's an aristocracy. Um, and how if and if you lived in a world where um, 
work and survival weren't tied together, would those class systems be utterly disrupted or would we just make different ones? Any other thoughts? I guess my point my point here is just that the these are desert questions. Yeah, these are questions that we only ask when we have desert experiences. Yeah? They're, only, they're questions that we only ask in moments of reflection, of silence, of solitude, or of praise, moments of gratitude, moments of rest, um, and also moments of vulnerability and loss. All of these are, are desert moments. All of these are moments that cause us to, to reflect um, and a lot of these moments happen to us, uh, sudden unexpected moments of loss or um, a diagnosis or being fired from a job. The, these are desert moments that are given to us. But the challenge for us is, is also to live lives where we generate those moments for ourselves through cultivating times of solitude and silence and um, habits of gratitude and habits of rest. Um, moments that allow us to return to our lives and see our lives afresh with the eyes of Sabbath, the eyes of Manuha, rather than the eyes of Mitzrayim, the eyes of relentless brick-making. So that this metaphor of the Exodus journey for Israel becomes, for us, um, instead of this one linear journey, it becomes a kind of cycle of stepping into the desert for a moment or an hour or a day, reflecting on the questions that this generates and then stepping back into our lives, allowing these questions to show, slowly reshape our lives, to slowly reshape our relationships as Sabbath lives and as Sabbath relationships. Jesus spent 40 days, not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness before he started his ministry. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't just to symbolize the 40 years that Israel spent in the desert. But I'm sure it also helped Jesus to connect with Manuha, with Sabbath rest himself in his total dependence on God in that situation. And when Jesus returned to his ministry, we see that every, every word and every deed uh, was speaking and embodying the logic of, of Manuha, of Sabbath rest and of delight, of God's hospitality, as we discussed last week. Um, Jesus shows what the Manuha of God really looks like. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I came that you should have life and have it abundantly. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me that I may give you rest. 
it's something, it's one of the frustrating things about call, calling Jesus Jesus is that we forget that the name is Joshua. It's the same as Joshua from the Old Testament. Um, and that, again, like, like Joshua, it is the job, it's, it's the job of Jesus to lead us through the water into, into the promised land. Um, so that just brings us briefly back to the um, the, the feeding miracle that we talked about before, uh, and there are actually in this part of Mark there are actually two different feeding stories, two different feeding miracles: is the the feeding of the four thousand, and then the feeding of the five thousand. So the feeding of the four thousand in Mark six, and then the feeding of the five thousand in Mark eight. Um, and we can see that that Jesus is um, that this is like a riff on the Exodus passage that we saw before of everyone in Exodus, everyone gathers and they get enough. Um, but in the feeding of the four thousand and the feeding of the five thousand, it's taken to another level where no one gathers um, and. Everyone is given more than enough. But if you, if you look at the details in the story, there's, there's references to, remote, to a remote place. Uh, there are all of these references to, um, to the Exodus story of being in the wilderness and people being put into groups of 50 and 100, all of these things. To a Jewish reader, all of these things would have instantly made them think about the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And they would have made the comparison and seen that this was taking God's provision, God's abundance to to another level. And yet what's amazing is that not only in the first story, but also in the second story, the disciples just don't get it at all. Um, As we reflect on that story, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here. It's pretty obvious the lesson that, God's provision and that God provides enough and that it doesn't matter what we have, that, but they don't get it. Um, this is the conversation that Jesus and the disciples have after the second. This is after the second one, not the first one, after the second one. It's actually, especially in the, um, uh, uh, let's not worry, worry about that one. Um, it's particularly funny in the message version. So we've got the message version here. Um, so this is just after the feeding of the 5,000, same kind of miracle of abundance. Um, then he left them, got back into the boat, headed for the other side. The disciples forgot to pack a lunch. I uh, love that detail. Uh, except for a single loaf of bread, there wasn't a crumb in the boat. Jesus warned, be very careful, keep a sharp eye out for the contaminating yeast of the Pharisees and the followers of Herod. Meanwhile, the disciples were finding fault with each other because they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus overheard and said, why are you fussing because you forgot bread? Don't you see the point of all this? Don't you get it at all? Remember the five loaves I broke for the 5,000? How many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? They said 12. And the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many bags full of leftovers did you get? (laughs) You can imagine them actually kind of wrestling with the question. Hmm, how many was it? And they're discussing it. I think it was seven, seven. And he's going, shaking his head going, yeah. You still not get it.
the disciples, even after these miracles, even after years with Jesus, they still approach life with the eyes of Egypt. Fear and anxiety, the economics of scarcity. Jesus is constantly in everything he says and everything he does, trying to help them to see the world with different eyes, the eyes of Manuha, the eyes of love and expectation, with the economics of grace and abundance. But they don't get it. In a perverse way, it's kind of encouraging for us to see how hard it was for them to get it because it means we can be kind to ourselves when we constantly fail to get it. Israel was in the desert 40 years. They didn't get it. The disciples were with Jesus for three years. They didn't get it. So we can be kind and forgiving to ourselves when we don't get it. Um, But this is also a sign that we need. We really do need to cultivate habits and disciplines. We need to create desert moments every day for ourselves because it takes a long time to transform our minds and our hearts. We don't need to beat ourselves up about it when we feel like we're not getting it, but we do need to cultivate this falling into the mercy of God. And I guess we need to um, to make sure that what drives us on this journey, again, I mean, it'd be, it's a, it would be tragically ironic if what drove us to cultivate habits and desert moments was the kind of fear and guilt that we were seeking to escape. Um, and we need to always keep, keep tabs on what's driving us as we seek to cultivate disciplines and as we seek to transform our lives and make sure that what is driving us is, well, not being driven at all, but we're actually being drawn forward by the beauty of the vision of the Sabbath life. This is how Norman Wurzbar describes it. Insofar as our practical living grows out of a grateful disposition, a sense that the gifts of God to us far exceed what we can comprehend or expect, we give concrete witness to the world of a God whose generosity and care simply know no bounds. When our work and our play, our exertion and our rest flow seamlessly from this deep desire to give thanks to God, the totality of our living, cooking, eating, cleaning, preaching, teaching, parenting, building, repairing, healing, creating, becomes one sustained and ever-expanding act of worship. It's a beautiful vision, and I hope it is a vision that can draw all of us forward on this slow and difficult journey of of cultivating desert moments, cultivating reflection that leads us to the place of rest and of manuha, drawn to it rather than driven. Uh, And this... This is what we're going to try to help each other with over the next few weeks. We will be thinking about our work, thinking about play, thinking about cooking, eating, cleaning, teaching, parenting, building, repairing, healing, creating. And we'll be reflecting 
on the practices and questions that might turn each of these spaces and each of these activities into spaces and activities of rest and delight, of worship, Sabbath spaces, manuha spaces. As I was preparing this talk this week, I constantly had reminders of things or things happening that connected with it. Um, the whole Sonia Kruger, Walid Ali thing this week made me think a lot about um, a Sabbath approach to the kinds of questions that, um, or the kinds of debates that are going on in our culture at the moment. Um, and though the issue is complex, and I had some questions about what Walid Ali said in response to Sonia Kruger, whether it was enough, whether it acknowledged the structural stuff that was going on enough, um, I, I still really loved the fact that he was trying to emphasise the fact that she was not a monster, that she was speaking out of fear and anxiety, the kind of fear and anxiety that shapes all of us. Um, there's this quote where he said, he said I'm, sh- yeah, I'm sure most of you saw it, but I'm not saying we should be silent in the face of bigotry. But when you engage with someone you disagree with, I'm talking about assuming the best in people, showing others radical generosity in the face of their hostility, which is the much harder choice because it demands much more restraint, much more patience and much more strength. I also saw a post um, from a friend, uh, actually a friend of Mark's and mine, uh, Deb Hirsch, who lives and works in the States, um, a post on Facebook this week where uh, in the wake of what happened in Nice and in the wake of the kind of culture of fear and conflict that really dominates the American political scene and the media scene at the moment, um, she talked about walking the streets and trying to pray a blessing on everyone she sees. She said, today I walked, as I walked I intentionally prayed for each person who crossed my path wondering about the hopes, dreams, and fears that make up their lives. I refused to judge or to fear. I chose instead to pray, to speak love and blessing, asking that each of them would come to know the power of the love of God. I had a similar experience to this um, last week, except it wasn't people, it was nature. Uh, I dropped Susie off to do something in Ascot Vale and I went down to the Maribyrnong River and just for an hour put my phone away, uh, walked along the river and tried um, to to pay attention. Incredibly difficult thing to do, but I just tried to pay attention to where I was and to what was happening. Um, And it was amazing how so much of what I've been reflecting on sort of came together in this one activity. Um, I found myself starting to pick up bits of plastic um, driven by the beauty of the place to exercise some kind of care for it Um, and yet at the same time was able to delight in the beauty of the place um, and to experience an hour of of rest uh, from the whirring of my kind of work parenting, pastoring mind. And to find that as all of those things came together, it, it 
it evolved into quite an intense experience of, of praise. All, those, all of those things coming together as, as an act of praise. And it, um, and it really was a life-giving experience. And it's a wonderful, I mean, it's such a rare opportunity when with the busyness of our lives, we're just having that experience of a desert moment, a moment to step out and then to step back in. Um, so as we move move to communion, um, I want to finish uh, with gratitude. And um, what was I, gonna, I was going to show you something else. I'll show you something really quickly. I just <laughs> I work at, my daughter Tilly woke me up at six thirty this morning, and so I was just sort of lying in bed, thinking about stuff, and. Um, as you do, I thought about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, so theologian Wesley had this idea of uh, theology comes out of four different things. So uh, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And we pull those four things together. Scripture is most important, obviously, but we pull those four things together to, to create our theology. And I, I thought of a kind of Sabbath life quadrilateral um, now I've been talking about this kind of instead of the Sabbath life being a linear journey like it was for, for Israel, it being a cycle. Um, and that these four things, I guess, driving this, this cycle of, of slowly moving down into Sabbath life. Um, so finding threads in, in, the, in the church tradition that speak to us, finding new voices these days that speak to us, watching things that um, speak life into us, cultivating practices and, and disciplines, those desert moments, reflecting and then returning to Scripture um, with, with perhaps new eyes that allow it to be a source of life for us and then cycling around. Um, I've been saying over the last few weeks, talking about the radical thing I'm doing of actually reading the Bible. So I'm reading the Bible over a year. I'm getting an email every day, uh, and I'm up to halfway through Deuteronomy now. But uh, I'm I'm really finding this to be the case, that all of these parts of the Bible that I've struggled with so much for so long, this process is actually making them life-giving in a way that I I had not anticipated. So what I'll do is I'll leave it there. I'll say a little prayer. Then we can all come forward and um, take some juice and a cracker. And then I'll, I'll read you one last reflection and then we'll eat together. So let me pray first. Loving God, um, I, I just ask that you're able to, to pull out bits and pieces from what I've said um, that, that might speak to, to people here that might um, in some small way be an encouragement to, to think about ways of cultivating desert moments, um, to think about ways of, of generating questions that might lead us slowly into 
Sabbath life into your rest. Uh, and I pray for the, the weeks coming up that in much more practical and much more grounded ways we might continue to do this, to, to share, share ideas and practices and questions that help us to, to enter more deeply into Sabbath life in different parts of our, um, our lives. And um, I pray this morning as, as we come to, to communion that, um, that we might learn how to, to experience these gifts of bread and wine as, um, as a practice, a desert moment that causes us to reflect and that helps us to move more deeply into, into your rest and into Sabbath life. Thank you.